All right, welcome back, everybody. <clears throat> if I can have your attention, please. Uh, we're going to get started again. <clears throat> Let me invite you back into the room. Welcome. Uh, this is the, uh, the sermon portion of our worship service. This is what we'll do for the next two or so hours. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's not going to be that long. Maybe an hour. I'm just kidding. Uh, we're in Ruth. We're in the, uh, the book of Ruth. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, the first five books of the Bible are, are called the Pentateuch. It's comprised of five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, immediately following those first five books are Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And we're in the little book of Ruth, and so uh, if you're counting on your fingers, that's the eighth book of the Bible. And so I invite you to turn there. You probably are already there if you have a Bible on your phone or if you're quicker in your table of contents. But I'm just trying to get there myself, and so I'm going to keep uh, talking. Just kidding. There we are. Ruth, uh, <clears throat> Ruth chapter 2. Uh, this is the uh, fifth sermon in our series here. And uh, thank, thank uh, Charles Gregoire for filling in last week and covering Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And so uh, 1 through 13 this morning, we're going to cover verses 14 through 23. Uh, so if you're there, I'll read our text together after I say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that when our life and our trials and our circumstances and our uh, anxieties and our worries and our fears and when everything seems to be crashing around us, we thank you that we can hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that he is a sure foundation, a refuge in times of trouble, a great shepherd and an overseer of our souls. We thank you for all the ways in which you watch over us and in which you protect us and in which you bring life, especially in situations uh, that are difficult and painful. You give us hope and we thank you for that. We thank you for this story uh, that we're able to read together today. Uh, 3,000 years ago or so, the events of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. All these events took place so long ago, and yet they're still relevant and speaking today by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would speak to us today as we listen, and that you would use your word to challenge us and to change us uh, and to draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read together uh, Ruth chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 14 through 23. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. It's about 22 liters or five gallons uh, of barley that she worked up in a day. 
Verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, we drop into the middle of chapter 2, and just from that reading, it sounds like a description of an agrarian, ancient lifestyle, some sort of insight into ancient farming. They would have lived in a walled city. Uh, they would have had a city gate. They would have gone outside that gate, and instead of uh, several different pieces of land or field. There would have just been a field, and in parts of the field there would have been stones that marked out who's the owner of that portion of the field. Uh, the word glean is used 16 times in this chapter. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of labor. It's a picture of work. It's a picture of getting up, going to work early in the morning, uh, working through the end of the day. The time period, according to verse 23, is the barley and wheat harvest. The barley harvest started in April, and the wheat harvest concluded about 50 days later uh, in, uh, in, April, or in May. Uh, it was a tough life. It was a tough job. I don't know if you've ever seen um, uh, the show Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. Anybody ever seen that show? Anybody seen that? Yeah, it's a good show, right? Uh, he does all kinds of crazy jobs, and he gets, you know, it just shows you what it's like for the average person to work in that sort of way. Um, I remember, how many of you grew up on a farm? Anybody grew up on a farm? A couple of you, a handful, not very many, just a handful of us. Not me, I didn't grow up on a farm, but a handful of you. Uh, I visited a farm once, I stayed the night uh, <laughs> at a friend of mine's house in like fourth grade, his name is Charlie, you don't need to know that, but, um, but his dad, I didn't know this going into the sleepover, but his dad woke us up at 3.30 in the morning and Charlie just got up. And I looked at him like he was crazy, and I didn't know what to do, and so he just waited, and I said, so we got up. And when we got up, I didn't know what we were doing, but I just followed, and we went into a field, and we just kept walking, and I finally said, what are we doing? He said, we're going to find the cow. And so we walked through several fields, through several gates, and we found a cow, and I guess it was his cow, and we walked it back to a barn, and then we set up pails, and, and this was just Charlie's normal life. And then we went and got chicken eggs, went into the coop and chased chickens and got eggs, and 
by the time like eight o'clock in the morning came, I was done. I didn't want to be friends with Charlie anymore. I didn't want anything to do with farm life. Um, it was just a hard thing. And in visiting other people in, uh, in other uh, farms, uh, Julie's family is, is from Jonesboro, Arkansas, and they have uh, large rice farms. And, and the life of a farmer is hard. Uh, they get up early and they, um, they, they stay up all day and then they work and then they go to bed at like 8 o'clock at night and it's just, a, it's just a hard job. This chapter gives us insight into that. Gleaning uh, was a process where um, it was divided. Men would uh, use, this is the Stone Age, basically they would use uh, stone cut tools and they would uh, bend over and they would sickle with these sharp stones cutting the sheaves and they would fall over. As they fell over, the hired servants, um, oftentimes women uh, who were hired to work in the field, would follow the reapers and the reapers would cut and the, the um, gatherers would gather and then they would bundle them into sheaves and then they would, uh, they would harvest a field like that. But in, in the Jewish law, in the Old Testament law, there was a process by which the poor uh, of the land and the sojourners in the land and uh, the foreigners who were visiting the land could also be provided for. It was a sort of modern day food stamps for the time, but they had to go into the field and they would have to follow the reapers and the servants who followed after them and they would have to pick through whatever was left. Could have just been a, a single stock barley, single head of grain, they would pick every bit of it up and they would put it in a basket or they would put it in a pouch or something, but they, they would just follow along and gather what was left. They weren't allowed to reap up to the edges. The owners weren't allowed to reap up to the edges of their field. The edges were left for the foreigner, for the sojourner. This is a working scene. This is a working situation. And we have Ruth, the young Moabite widow, who asks her mother-in-law in chapter 2, verse 1, can I go out to the fields? And Naomi gives her permission. But there's a lot more to this scene than just insight into an ancient agrarian society. So let's, let's look back. Verse 14, we're going to go back over these verses in a little bit more detail. Verse 14 um, basically is a lunchtime. Boaz has entered the field. He's the owner of the field. He's talked to his reapers. He's talked to his servants. He's given them a blessing. He is a godly man. He fears the Lord. And he has noticed Ruth. He notices her because she's working, because she's a Moabite, because she's in his field. And he asks one of his reapers, who is this? And he tells her, this is uh, Naomi who returned from Moab. This is the young Moabite widow. He um, blesses her, speaks kindly to her in the previous chapter. That was last week in the previous section. Now at lunchtime, the mealtime, somewhere in the middle of the day, verse 14, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. This is a working scene. It says she was satisfied by this lunch. And for many of us, that may be hard to grasp. We don't always understand hunger the way they might have. She's going to work all day. She's going to come home, and yet she's coming home with leftovers from her lunch. 
Verse 15, when she rose again to glean, she goes back out after a short break. Boaz instructs his young men to bless her. He says, let her glean even among the sheaves. That is, out of my own profit, out of what you've gathered for me and bundled up, give her some from my own profit and do not reproach her. Verse 16, also pull out for her some of the bundles and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And Boaz is a boss. He enters the field like a boss. He instructs everybody like a boss, and he's telling them what to do uh, for her. Uh, he's giving her more. He's giving her extra. Boaz is going far beyond the legal requirements. He goes the extra mile, and he's absorbing the loss financially that he's giving to her. Um. This says a lot about Boaz because he gains really nothing by helping her. He's not her nearest of kin. This was a, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, was a process known as leveret marriage. And we don't understand leveret marriage. I don't want to bore you with this, but, but leveret marriage was the process by which after the Israelites uh, took the conquest of the land. They entered into the promised land. The land was divided by their tribes. All the different tribes were divided. And in each tribe, the land that they were allotted was divided by clans. And each clan had a family, and that family had a parcel of land. And it was theirs. No matter what happened in their lifetime, that land would be passed to their children and to their children and to their children so that they would always have the same piece of land. But in the event that your family was snuffed out, Elimelech took his wife, Naomi, and their two kids, Weakling and, uh, what was his name? Weakling and Destruction or Weakling and Sickly or something like that. That's the kid's name. I didn't name him. That's their name. They took the two kids. They went to Moab and the, they all died. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion. They all passed away. And so leveret marriage meant that the nearest kin to them would marry one of the widows and perpetuate the name so that they wouldn't lose all their property. That's what the Redeemer meant, the kinsman Redeemer. Boaz is not even the closest redeemer. There's somebody closer. There's somebody else who's lawfully, legally obligated to step in and help, but he hasn't. The person hasn't helped Naomi. The person hasn't helped Ruth. They haven't been involved in the process at all. Boaz, it's not even his responsibility. This is a lot about Boaz. We learned in chapter two early on that he's a worthy man, that he's a righteous man, uh, this is a dangerous situation. We've been warned twice that, uh, that a person could be assaulted in a field, rebuked, reproached, mistreated. Um, even Naomi said, don't go to another field. You could be assaulted. This is dangerous. Remember, this is the backdrop of the judges. And in the judges, in the period of the judges, everybody did whatever they wanted to do. They all just followed their hearts, and it was a violent, wicked time. Go back to Judges 17 through 21. There's uh, all kinds of violence. There's war, there's bloodshed, there's sexual immorality, there's 
There's rape. There's all kinds of horrible things in Judges 17 through 21. And I'm not talking about in a foreign country. I'm talking about the people of God who had the law of God and the oracles of God and the prophets of God and the people of God. Judges 17 through 21 gives you a snapshot of the horrendous state of affairs that Boaz lived in. And Boaz stands up above everybody as a righteous, humble, godly man. As soon as I read this, uh, there was an illustration that came to mind. Uh, I used to work at a summer Christian sports camp called Canacuck. You may have never heard of it. Have you ever heard of Canacuck? Maybe one or two. It's, it's like a Midwestern thing, but it's the largest Christian sports camp um, in the world. They have over 10 campuses. They hire NCAA athletes to train kids in sports. Kids go for a month or two weeks, and then they, uh, a couple of years ago, added a, a one-week camp. And uh, they just share the gospel and share the word. And, and all summer, these Christian summer camps go. And it was started something like 100 years ago by a guy named Spike White, who passed it on to his son, uh, Joe White. And Joe White is a... Uh, incredibly towering figure, not stature-wise. He's not a big guy. He's a, he's a very strong guy. Um, uh, he used to uh, go around and speak around the country. He would carry in an enormous cross, uh, and he would uh, cut it down and whittle it and give a dialogue as though he were uh, the one who prepares crosses. He, he's an incredible guy, uh, in demand, speaks in a lot of places, written a lot of books. And I remember first time I was around him, I was serving at a banquet a fundraiser. He was the guest speaker and everyone was just talking about, oh, Joe White, oh, Joe White, oh, Joe White. And I just expected this guy who's in charge of this enormous enterprise um, to uh, just, I was expected just to be wowed by him, but I was wowed by him in a different way. I was just a college kid and I was called into this wealthy uh, situation just to serve lasagna and drinks and stuff like that. And, and at some point, I don't know uh, what happened, but, but um, there was a spill in the kitchen and uh, no one was in there. So I walked in and I, I could see uh, from the side that somebody had knocked over an entire tray of lasagna <laughs> and it was uh, tumped over and, and, um, and then around the corner as I walked around, um, I saw uh, Joe White on his hands and knees just cleaning the floor, wiping up and, and this is not what I expected. Not what I expected. A couple summers later, I had the opportunity to go work there and uh, I had a week's worth of like nasty camp clothes from Branson, Missouri, the heat in the summer there. And they, I had a four hour pass and you got a four hour pass. Sometimes you get a 24 hour pass, but this is your week off or your night off or whatever, your day off. And, and this was my four hour night off and me and two or three other guys were just gonna go to a laundromat and do our laundry and grab something to eat and come back. And, and on our way out, a girl stopped us and she said, uh, where are you guys going on your night out? And we said, we're going to go here, we're going to do laundry and all that. She said, no, don't. Go here. Uh, here's a great restaurant. Um, go there and, and give me all your laundry. We're like, no way. These are camp clothes and they're disgusting. Camp. We just stuff them in a bag, you know, and at the end you get to the laundromat and when you pour out that bag, it's just, you know, it's bad. Um, but she took all of our bags and she... She did all of our laundry and she told us where to pick them up. And when she told us where to pick them up, at the end of the night, we came back and it was Joe White's house. And it was his own daughter who took her own night off as a, as a teenage girl just to do the laundry for all of us and to serve us in that way. She put little scripture cards in the mouth of all the laundry bags. This girl was godly and humble and a servant. Even though she was the top, even though he was the top of this massive organization, 
That's often not what you find when you look into organizations and find a person in charge, right? You often don't see an authority person or a leader who's humble and servant and full of integrity. That's what I imagine Boaz was like. Gentle, kind, everything in, that we, is described about him is he's a humble, servant, authority person who looks out for people. Everyone is safe in his field. Verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was five gallons of barley. She took it up, went into the city, and when her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, uh, verse 19 tells her, her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. I'm amazed by uh, Naomi, and not Naomi, but, um, but by Ruth. Ruth worked hard all day. She brought it all back. Um, if you've ever had to unload the groceries by yourself, right, you give someone an insight. Have you ever had to, guys will get as many of the things on their fingers as they can and try to carry as many bags as we can into the house. It's at our house, it's an interesting process. Julie will text a minute before she gets home, have everybody outside like ready and waiting. And, and then when we get out there, uh, if we get out there on time, she's pulled up and then the l- trunk opens and we all get as much as we can. And then it's a... Ruth does this all by herself. She gets up early, she goes to the field, she gleans, then after she gleans all the, she beats out the barley portions, and after she, is the winnowing is part of this process where they, they throw the barley up and all the, the chaff blows away. She gathers it all, she puts it all in, a, and she hauls this home, this five-gallon bucket home, and when she gets home, she's uh, reminded Remember, her mother-in-law's name is uh, Naomi, which means sweetie pie, which is what you call her in the South, or honey, or something like that. Her name means pleasant or sweet, uh, but she's changed her name to what? To bitter. She's like, don't call me Naomi, don't call me sweetie anymore, call me bitter, I'm upset, I'm angry. So Ruth has worked all day long, and this is what she is maybe bracing herself to come home for. Do you find it hard to love bitter people? How do you do loving, angry, bitter people? Naomi's home. She's bitter. She's not working. She stayed home while Ruth went to work all day. And Ruth comes in with this blessing. Leftover food. (laughs) She gives her more of her food. She shows her what she got. And it's just amazing to me how grace has a way of changing our attitudes. Have you ever received something that you didn't deserve? Have you ever been the recipient of a gift when you know you didn't deserve that gift? Naomi's attitude changes. God does not repay our sins with judgment, but with kindness and grace. Romans 2, 4 says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and his patience and his forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Naomi doesn't deserve the grace that she's been given, but she gets grace. And look how she responds. She responds with a blessing. Blessed be the man who took notice of you in verse 19. In verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living. That's her 
or the dead, your former husband. She gives a blessing. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness. Naomi's changing her tune. Something's happening in Naomi's heart right here. Just in chapter one, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. The Lord has not been kind to me. He's dealt harshly with me. He's judged me. Don't call me Naomi any longer. Call me bitter. But now she's saying, the Lord, may this person be blessed by the Lord because of the Lord's kindness who has not forsaken the, Lord, the living or the dead. Naomi also says this man is a close relative. He's a redeemer of ours. Ruth said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good. It's good that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you'll be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. The barley harvest started in April. What did they get from barley? They got beer, bread, and fodder. Uh, that's how they sustained their life, and they, they used the barley harvest to fuel the animals, uh, to start making beer, and to start making bread. And then that started in April, and then in May, uh, the wheat harvest, once it was over about 50 days later, um, that's when the wheat harvest was celebrated. And these two um, beginnings... Uh, there was a festival that was celebrated at these two harvests. The first one was uh, the first fruits, the festival of first fruits. That's when the, the first uh, stone sickle went into the ground, uh, and this was the celebration of first fruits. And then 50 days later, at the end, there was the celebration of the harvest. It was called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of first fruits at the beginning of the barley harvest and the Feast of Weeks at the end. In the New Testament, it's called something different. It's called Pentecost. It's the Greek word, 50 days after. After the long process started, there was a celebration and it was celebrated on Pentecost. Coincidentally, do you know what today is? Today is the 50th day since Easter day of Pentecost. And of course, we celebrate uh, Easter. This is the seventh week from April 4th, May 23rd. We celebrate uh, Easter and then Pentecost for us means something different. We don't celebrate the wheat harvest, but the coming of the Holy Spirit in which God harvested people to himself and stamped them with a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance. Now, how can we understand this passage? Let me just give you two things to close with. Number one, Naomi's been through trauma. Taken to a foreign land, husband dies, yet she's comforted because she has two sons. They marry, joyful, tinged with a little bit of not so much joy because they're Moabite women and this is forbidden but then their two sons die and there are no grandchildren. Dead husband, dead sons, no grandchildren. Bitterness, uh, trauma, tragedy has struck her. She returns at the end of chapter one. She returns to the Lord. She returns to her people and Ruth comes with her. Even though she comes back, Naomi is still angry and bitter, but she's entered into the community of faith, into her own people, and she tells them how bitter and angry she is in the midst of this process. 
John Piper writes in A Sweet and Bitter Providence, that God who is providently working in the good times was just as active in the dark times. And some people don't like to think this. They hate to think that God would bring a painful trial or a terrible circumstance into their life. But what's worse, to believe that all things are chance and random and without purpose, without any meaning, that all the pain that you're experienced was without any purpose at all? Or to understand that the same God that allows difficulties and trials and painful things to happen in your life is the same God who can renew that and redeem that and bring good things from the pain that can bring reconciliation. Had that not happened to Naomi, Ruth would not have been converted. If Ruth's not converted, she doesn't become a bride for a single Boaz, and they don't have a child, and they don't have a child, and they don't have a child who becomes King David, and they don't have a child who eventually, in Matthew 1, we learn is the uh, ancestor of the Messiah. You see the hard things happen and God redeems it and he works it and in the midst of dark times you have no idea the thousands of things that God is preparing in the future for those who trust in him through the painful and difficult situations and scenarios in life. The people who most cherish the sovereignty of God are often the people who suffer the most. Let me give you a second application. You may have noticed it. You may not have noticed it. But look back at verse 14. We see a messianic shadow, an overtone. Something's unusual about verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. She sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain she ate until she was satisfied, and then she had leftovers. Now listen, hermeneutically, expository, good Bible study doesn't take any random verse and just force it to mean something else, okay? Don't do that, right? Don't take something and jam it out of context and jam it into another situation where it doesn't fit. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean you can you know, make a buttload of money and catch footballs and do something else. It just means something in context, what it means. Taking a passage out of context and, and ripping it and making it mean something else is not good hermeneutics, but, but this passage, something else is different. Something happening here. Boaz, it has a, a purpose for this passage. It really happened. Boaz really gave her bread and wine. Uh, she really ate and she was really satisfied and she really had leftovers. But there's something else happening here. If you look through Boaz, through the situation, you see Jesus in the shadow. If you squint hard enough, if you look just right, you can see in this a messianic overtone. What are the marks of the Messiah that we see in this passage? Boaz is listed as her redeemer. He's going to redeem her. He's going to, a redeemer takes something broken and fixes it and makes it more beautiful and more valuable, restores dignity, restores honor. He gives something broken worth and value. That's what Jesus does. That's what Boaz does. We also see 
Boaz gives her bread and wine, right? That's, that's kind of obvious, right? You can see that. Bread and wine foreshadows something. It foreshadows taking the obedient, humble path toward the cross. Its significance is more than just bread and wine. And its imagery is used sparingly in the Old Testament, but when you see it, it has meaning. Think about Melchizedek. Uh, in Genesis, Abraham uh, goes after the five kings who have kidnapped Lot and all their possessions, and Abraham musters his army, and he goes after them, and he defeats them. And when he comes back through the Jerusalem area, it says that Melchizedek, the king of Salem. What does that mean? Melchizedek, two hyphen word. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem. Salem means king of peace. So the king of righteousness who rules over the kingdom of peace brings out what? Bread and wine. He's the priest of God most high and he serves it to Abraham and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. This is significant. This is significant. Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us. Think about the Exodus and the Passover that before uh, death would happen all around, those who took the bread and the blood and took it over the doorstep would be, death would pass over them and they would be saved in this painful event. Think about Joseph who enters into slavery and following this Philippians 2 path down to uh, Jesus became obedient, he became obedient to death, became obedient to slavery, even death on a cross, and so God exalted him. This happened with Joseph as he gets sold into slavery, and in slavery he gets uh, uh, imprisoned, and at the bottom of the pit in prison, who does he meet? But a baker and a wine taster. In Proverbs, the wayward woman offers stolen water and bread, which is a false banquet. But in Proverbs 9, 5, we learn that wisdom, the personification of Jesus, prepares a banquet of bread and wine. Jesus at the Lord's Supper brings the meaning fully when he says, this is my body and this is my blood which was shed for you and that by my suffering you will be saved. In that way, Boaz images Jesus. By his own money, by his own crop, by his own, everything that he does for Ruth costs him something to bless her. And he does it with no ulterior motives. He calls her to himself, even though she's a foreign woman. He serves her, as in Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He protects her like a shepherd and an overseer. First Peter says is how Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of our soul. There's a real threat for Ruth. In every field, she's in danger, but not Boaz. Boaz protects her. Boaz is meek, though he has all the authority in the field. Meekness is humility and power under control. Without arrogance or without show, Boaz is meek. He provides for her. Tony Morita says that this is a scene, a picture of abundance, similar to what Mark says about Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. They all ate and they were all satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and fish. Jesus satisfies. 
In John 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Come and drink this water. You'll never be thirsty again. Come drink from this well. Listen, in a world where everyone is drinking from bitterness and angst and anxiety and worry and fear and division about who's on my team and who's in my camp and who's... Listen, we as believers drink from a well that satisfies us in Christ. Not just that, but her cup overflows. Ruth had more than she needed. She had so much more that at the end of that little luncheon, she packed it up, tucked it away, and at the end of the day, she gave it to her mother-in-law as food that satisfied her as well. Psalm 23.5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. You see in this picture, through Boaz and the real-time meaning that it had for our real people at the time, we see through that an image of who Jesus would be and is for us. So Father, in response to this, it's our joy. It's our joy to worship you and to exalt you and to thank you that you are a God who satisfies, that you feed our soul the world would feed our soul in ways that would destroy it and consume it and leave us hungry for more, never content, never satisfied, always longing for something more, feeling empty and hungry for more. And yet, Jesus, you satisfy in such a way that we are content and overflowing as we come to you, the author of life. We pray that you would speak to us by your word today. We pray that you would use your word to challenge us and to change us, to make us more and more like you. We thank you for the example shown in Boaz. We thank you for Ruth and for her example. We thank you that you are the lifter of those heads who have no more hope, those who have been crushed, who are filled with sorrow, we thank you that you're the lifter of their heads, that your word says that a, a smoldering wick you will not snuff out, that if someone is just barely hanging on, you do not delight in crushing their hope, but you, you, uh, you kindle that hope anew in Christ. We praise you for that. We praise you for that, and it's our joy to respond to you in worship, in prayer, in humility, and in gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.